What are you praying for this morning? What are you asking God for? Is it all about you and about things you wish were different in your life? Or are you praying for others? What are you holding up to the Lord and saying, God, I am asking you to do this for your glory, for the gospel, and for these people? That's the heart of what we're talking about. And so in 1 Kings 18, we have actually the prayer that this friend of God that we're going to look at this morning that Pastor James has been pointing us to uh, prayed. And so let me read it to you beginning in verse 20 of chapter 18. So Ahab, that's the wicked king that uh, had led Israel to wander. This is a group of people that are wandering, and they have wandered really far away from the wisdom that God gave them in the Torah. So Ahab, this wicked king, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. The prophets there, we'll find out later, are the 850 false prophets. And they're all coming together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then jumping down to verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, that's the evening offering, Elijah the prophet came near. Second time we have that little phrase. He came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Our Father, as we come before you this morning, confessing your faithfulness to us, we have to say that you indeed are God. You are the living God, the true God, the God of grace and mercy, the God who is sovereign over all. And Lord, we are so thankful that you are the Lord of this church and you are the Lord of our lives. Lord, as you heard this ancient prophet, Elijah, when he came near and cried out to you, would you hear our prayer this morning as we come near and cry out to you, the same God in the same way. Lord, this morning we come not asking for our own benefit. We aren't asking for our, our lives. We're not asking for you to do things for us so that it would be better for us or more comfortable for us or easier for us. Lord, we want you to answer our praying so that people around us would know that you are the true and living God that you are the God of mercy and grace. Lord, as we pray together this morning as a church and we pray for our missionaries, how thankful we are for the mission agencies that are represented here in our midst that serve your people, your frontline servants that you have sent into hard spaces and dark places to rescue people, to return them to the shepherd of their soul. And Lord, we pray that you would hear us this morning as we pray that you would sustain these agencies that are represented here this morning. 
that you would be with their leaders, that you would be with those that minister, that you would be with their boards, that you would be with those missionaries that they serve, that in every way these agencies this morning would experience an unusual provision of grace and power from you in the coming year so that at the end of the year as they look back, even if we never hear about it as a church, there would be so much gospel work that has been done that there would be no doubt in anybody's mind that you are the true and the living God. Lord, we think of the ministries of this church, our children's ministry, our young people, our teens, our, our college ministry. Lord, and we pray especially for those that serve in these ministries. Lord, I pray that you would energize them as you energized your servant Elijah in a moment of extreme tiredness and just ready to give up. Lord, literally saying to you, I have had enough. And yet your spirit sustained him and your spirit energized him and he was able to do all that he did, not in his own strength or by his own abilities, but by your spirit. Lord, I know that in a group this size, there are people here who are tired and who have come to you out of extreme exhaustion and emotional depletion and they have said in their heart to you, it is enough. And Lord, I pray that you would do for them what you did for Elijah. That they would see beyond their tiredness and their depletion and their hurt to the immense thing that you are doing through them by your spirit in the lives of our children, in the lives of our teens, in the lives of our college ministries, just in the lives of our church. Lord, we just pray that you would sustain them and help them. And may the truth of your word today be a truth that would glorify you but also encourage them. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and that you sought us and you found us and you returned us from our sin to our shepherd, the good and the glorious shepherd of our souls, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to have you turn uh, this morning to the Old Testament text that we looked at, 1 Kings chapter 18, because it is what James is referring to when he comes to the end of his letter and he climaxes everything he's been saying with this thought, the effectual fervent praying of a righteous person accomplishes much. It prevails over much. Think about what James has been driving at. <clears throat> you know, as we've been together, uh, this morning is our 23rd sermon out of the book of James. We've been listening to James for a long time. Where has he been going? And if you come down to the very end of his book, here's, here's what you discover. There are people that James cares deeply about who have wandered away from the truth. They have wandered away from the word of truth that brought them to life in chapter 1. They have engaged in behavior that, that James talks about in chapter 1 when he says you've got to put off rampant wickedness. And they've been engaged in that rampant wickedness. And the proof of that is what shows up in chapter 4 when he starts talking to them about what's been coming out of their mouth and what's been coming out of their life and the effect that it's had on the body. Here are people that James cares deeply about and they have been deceived by sin and they have not been doers of righteousness. They've been actually doers of sins. 
They have wandered far away from the truth. And the outcome of that deception, the outcome of where all of this is leading, James says in chapter 1, verse 15, is this. When you follow your desires, and those desires lead you away from the way of truth into a life of rampant wickedness and moral filthiness, and James is going to talk about this as spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery, you become an enemy of God. You align yourself with the enemies of God. That's where people were in James' day, and James is burdened about these people, and so he's writing a letter, and he's saying there are gospel risk-takers that the good shepherd of these people that I care about is going to send to, to rescue them. In other words, these people have been led by their sin into dark places and into hard spaces, and God is going to take righteous, faithful people, and he is going to assign them to go into those dark places and into those hard spaces to rescue those people. And so what are those people going to experience in those hard places and dark spaces? As the Lord sends them there, to restore and return people who have wandered back to the shepherd. They're going, to, they're going to experience opposition. They're going to experience persecution. Some of them are going to suffer. And what's going to bring those people back is not their own efforts or their own energy or even their own suffering. It is going to be the Spirit of God, the fervent, faithful praying. And I think that's why this morning James points us to the final friend of God in the book, the man Elijah, because this is exactly what had happened to his people in the Old Testament who had been given wisdom from above in the law of Moses, who had been the recipients of the word of truth that had brought them into existence as a nation. They had been brought into a good land that God had given them. God had been gracious to them. God had been good to them. God had had sent his prophets to them to minister that word to them, and still those people wandered. And by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 18, they had wandered into very deadly places. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The sins that the nation was committing before the Lord were the sins that the law of Moses prescribed a death sentence to. The kinds of sinning that was going on in Israel when we get to 1 Kings 18 were the sins that were worthy of death. This, I think, is what James has in mind in chapter 1, verse 15, when he talks about that when sin remains unchecked in our life, it leads us to a place where the law looks at us and says, you are worthy of death. And into all of this, God sent a friend named Elijah. You could say it this way. God called a nobody to go to a somebody to tell everybody that he wanted a word with his people about his word. And that's really going to be how we look at this passage this morning. So let's, let's say that again. As we think about God's friend Elijah, how fervent praying changes everything. Elijah is the story of how God sent a a nobody to a somebody to tell everybody that he wanted a word 
And so this morning, let's, let's just analyze that a little bit. This man that was sent into a hard place and into a dark space to return God's people to himself, who was this nobody? Who was this nobody? And James is going to point out to him, this man Elijah, as an example of a righteous man. So let, let's just sort see if we can't unpack what James has in mind as he points to Elijah. Elijah was, a, was just an ordinary man. And James wants you to know this. Elijah comes on the scene. There is no great genealogy that is presented to you. You're, you're given no background in terms of who he was. He was an ordinary, humble individual. We know he was a Tishbite, but we don't even really know what city he was from. Uh, the, the, the city that's attached to him is one that's unsure, and so we don't even know much about this man. It seems like he just bursts in on the pages of Scripture, and it's like God brings him front and center, and, and we haven't heard of this man before. We don't know much about him. He's just an ordinary, humble servant that God called. That's James' point. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You know, you may feel like you're not somebody very special. You don't have a long history. Your family genealogy is not one that you would be super proud of. Your, your lineage is not filled up with great servants of God. You are just a humble, ordinary, everyday, unknown person, and you wonder if God even knows who you are and where you are. You know theologically that he does. You know that in your head, but sometimes you wonder, Lord, I've just, I've just been serving you in this place. I'm, I'm really a nobody. And that's Elijah. He was an ordinary, humble, obedient, faithful servant. And that's the key. He was faithful. By the time you get to that monumental moment in Elijah's life, he says this, I want you to answer my praying, Lord, so that everybody will know that everything I have been doing, I have been doing according to your word. That's in 1836. He was obedient and he was faithful. He was wholehearted in his approach to God. He was a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting servant. Whatever God told him to do, Elijah just went and did it. We're not told about his internal feelings until we get to chapter 19. All we're told is that when God told this man to do something, this man went and did it no matter what. When he said, listen, Elijah, I want you to go to the most powerful man in the kingdom because I have something I want you to say to him, Elijah went. When God said to him, Elijah, I want you to go to this brook and I want to take care of you there and I'm going to send a raven, Elijah could have said, whoa, 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 hang on a second. I am your prophet. I am a good Jew. You're sending an unclean bird to feed me? That's going to make me unclean. Elijah didn't do any of that. He just went and did exactly what God told him to do. And then when God said to him, listen, I actually want to take you from the brook and I want you to go right into the middle of Jezebel's home area. I want you to go right into her territory where she came from. There's a widow there that I'm going to use to feed you and, and, and sustain you, and I want you to go, and I want you to meet this widow. Elijah gets up, and he goes. 
You have a long history in these chapters of a very ordinary, humble, everyday person listening to God and doing exactly what God told him to do. He had been listening to God and he had been obeying God for a long time before he ever stood on that mountain and called fire down from heaven. And you know there's a pattern there for us, isn't there? That oftentimes as God gets us ready for that moment in our life that he has put us on the planet to do, there is often a lifetime before of God getting us ready for that one moment by reminding us and helping us and encouraging us and correcting us so that we do what this ordinary, everyday, humble servant of God did. We do exactly what God tells us to do. And sometimes when we don't, God is so gracious to correct us. We're going to find that this happens in Elijah's life in chapter 19. Elijah, after this monumental victory, basically says, I'm done. It is enough. In other words, if you could put it in our language, after this monumental period of time, an extended period of time of of difficult service to God in a hard place and in a dark space, and after seeing all that God did, there came a moment in Elijah's life when you find him by himself out in the middle of a desert under a tree, and he's throwing up his hands to God, and he's literally saying to God, I'm done. I've had enough. You ever been there? I'm done. It's enough. I'm tired. This isn't changing. This is exhausting. Your people aren't responding. I've done what I've done. And, and, and God, I'm just all in. I am done. It is enough. I've been there. Truth is, you've been there. Some of you may be there right now. You've had a season of unbearable difficulty, but, but unbeknownst to you, it's been probably one of the most fruitful seasons in your life. You just haven't seen the fruit yet. And in the middle of all of that, you threw your hands up and you told the Lord, I am done. Enough. And the God who sent fire on Mount Carmel could have easily sent fire on his servant, but he didn't. He came down and he graciously ministered to his servant, restored his servant, returned his servant, Elijah's life is the story of a man just like us. But if you read that life, it's amazing. There are five stunning miracles that are just unbelievable that God uses Elijah to bring about in Israel during his time here. The only prophet who has more miracles than Elijah is Elisha, who has 10 miracles that are recorded in the narrative. And you'll remember that when Elijah went up to heaven, Elisha's one request was, I want a double portion, and he gets a double portion. And it's laid out for you in evidence of the 10 miracles that happened in Elisha's life. So how in the world did this ordinary, humble, faithful, tired, sometimes discouraged servant of God accomplish what he accomplished? He did it the same way that God's servants today do what they do for the Lord. He did it by the power of God's Spirit and by fervent praying. And that's exactly how you and I are going to do what God calls us to do. God sent a nobody. God reached down 
and tapped a nobody and said to him, I have something I want you to do. But this nobody had been doing something. It wasn't like the nobody was just sitting around waiting for this magic moment when God was going to tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, pal, get off the bench. I'm putting you in. We're going to run these series of plays, and we're going to win the game. That's not what happened. This faithful servant of God had been doing something for a long time as he watched what was going on around him. You know what he'd been doing? James says he had been praying fervently. He had been praying fervently. Before we ever get to the opening sort of announcement in chapter 17, verse 1, this servant had been doing something. He had been praying fervently. There had been this consistent, passionate praying that had come out of this humble, everyday, ordinary person living in Israel, living in the northern kingdom, watching all of this idolatry, watching all of this immorality, watching all of this outward success deceive God's people into a path that was going to lead them to death. And here is one individual, one ordinary, everyday, common person, and he was talking to God about all of this. And one day in the midst of all of that conversation, God said to him, I want you to go to somebody because I'm going to start talking. So who's the somebody that Elijah is sent to? And you know this somebody as Ahab, Ahab, the son of Omri. Listen to how he's introduced into the storyline. Listen in 1 Kings chapter 16. Listen to how the writer wants you to think about Omri, or or, I'm sorry, Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, first thing you hear is this. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And just so you get it, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then it's even worse, verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing, For him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. This is the female consort of this god, Baal. And then here's what you find, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Here's the somebody. He's a very well-known person. He is the son of a powerful king named Omri who had restored the kingdom in the north to its political and military and economic uh, position. And Ahab inherited all of this, and because of his own political acumen and his own military ability and his own uh, leadership and, and economic savvy, he was able to take this kingdom even further into prosperity than his father had. In fact, he was so well known internationally that King Shalmaneser III, a very famous Assyrian king who lived at the same time, actually wrote about Ahab in his records. Ahab was well-known. He was powerful. He was respected. But God says, I want you to know something about Ahab. He was wicked. He was immoral. 
And he married through a political alliance the daughter of a very powerful king. And when that daughter came to Israel, she brought her gods with her. She brought Baal, the storm god. She brought Ashtaroth, the god of fertility, and those two gods would partner together, and they were the gods responsible in the eyes of the pagan world for bringing rain and bringing harvest to the land. And Jezebel was not content just to come into Israel as Ahab's wife and have a place where she could have her own worship. She wanted her worship to replace the worship that had been in Israel from the time of Moses, really from the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is why Elijah keeps calling the entire nation back to Abraham and back to Isaac and back to Israel, back to Jacob. Because here is a woman that brings 450 priests of Baal into this little country called Israel and 400 priests of the female consort You say, why did she need so many of them? Because it was their job to teach Israel how to worship these two gods. And they did. They had propagated the worship of two false gods in the very heart of God's people. And God's people, the monies that were coming in from God's people that fed Ahab's coffers were the monies that he was using to take care of these prophets. They sat and they ate at the king's table. And what that means is that the king was using state money, state funds, to fund all of this idolatry in the land. It is, a, it is an incredible picture if you stop and think about it. In fact, it was so wicked in the land that there's a detail given to you in chapter 16 when, when uh, God says about Ahab, he did more wickedly than any king before him. There was a high-ranking Israelite who decided to disregard the prophecy that God had made about Jericho. Remember Jericho? When uh, we read about Rahab earlier in, uh, in James and we talked about this very first city in this pagan land, Canaan, that God was sending his people into that was filled up with idolatry and immorality. And the chief city that represented all of that was Jericho. And in an act of judicial judgment, God decreed that that city be destroyed and never be rebuilt. But in the days of Ahab, there was a high-ranking Israelite who decided, you know, that prophecy, we don't have to pay attention to that. That's a choice piece of terrain. That was a powerful city at one point, and he decided to rebuild it. And when he laid the foundations of that city, he had a ceremony. He had an incredible, atrocious ceremony. He sacrificed his first son and put his first son into those foundations. And at the end, when he had rebuilt the city and he was dedicating the gates of that city, he sacrificed his youngest son. And if you go back to the prophecy, it's all there. Here is a king who threw off all restraint, who led God's people into this kind of disregard for the wisdom from above so that they could embrace the wisdom that Jezebel brought from below. And the entire land had been impacted by this. 
He did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before them. You know, folks, as you think about life in our day and age, we're not too far away from this. I'm not trying to spiritualize this. We do have to be careful about how we look at Old Testament texts and how we transport their truth. But realistically, spiritually, we're not too far away from a time like the time we're reading about where God's people, even God's people, are casting off restraint. Even God's people are looking at things that God has said and say, well, you know, that actually probably isn't for us and we can just go out and do whatever we want. And, and here in all of this was a nation that had been led whole hog into idolatry and whole hog into immorality and they stood in danger of spiritual judgment that was about to fall on their head. But God had another plan. <clears throat> and I'll play the card early. The card is this. God had decided to restore his people and to bring them to repentance. And so he tapped this nobody who had been praying fervently And he said, I want you to go to somebody, and when you get there, I want you to tell everybody a message that I have. So he comes to Ahab, and and he walks in at 17.1, and there's no, uh, there's like, there's no announcement. Okay, this is Elijah Elijah the Tishbite, and he's here to have a word with you, Ahab. Here's his credentials. Here's who he is. There's nothing. He shows up. And, and before he even opens up uh, his mouth, there's a message that God has given him. And the message is simple. No rain until I speak again. There's no rain. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? That in, in Israel's economy was actually a devastating judicial sentence. That was severe mercy that God was pouring down on his people. Because without rain, there was no harvest. Israel was a country with no natural water. If you've ever been over there, you know that there's only one river in that entire nation. It's the River Jordan. There's only one large body of fresh water. You know it as the Sea of Galilee. Everything else is a spring. Everything else is, is a well. There is, there is no natural water source in Israel except heaven. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God said to his people, I'm, I'm going to water the land for you. You don't have to worry about water. I'm going to take care of the water when you follow me. And when you follow me, I will give you early water. I will give you late water. I'll send the rains. And when the rains come, the earth will bear forth its precious fruit, its harvest, and you will eat until you are full. The idea there is that you will have so much abundance that you will be satiated. This is a Thanksgiving Day term. You know what I mean by Thanksgiving Day term? It's coming up. Some of you are already thinking that way. We got to get through October and then we got to roll through November and then comes the big day. This is the day when everybody, like you diet for months ahead of time to earn points to spend on Thanksgiving Day. Or you get to Thanksgiving Day and you promise yourself that you're going to diet for the next year based on what you plan to do. I mean, Thanksgiving Day is never accidental eating. Can we just acknowledge this? 
You're like, I ate more than I intended to. No, you didn't. You ate exactly how you intended to eat on Thanksgiving Day. You already know what's going to be on that table. It's not like you show up on Thanksgiving Day and there's a turkey and you're like, oh, where did that come from? I thought we were having lettuce, <laughs> right? And then there's this awesome pumpkin pie with whipped cream and you're like, oh, I thought we were having kale. <laughs> Nobody is surprised when you walk into your house on Thanksgiving Day and there is this mountain of food. It's not a surprise to you. And you didn't get there by accident. It's like, oh, no, no, I was going to the gym. And then, no, you know why we don't go to the gym? Because they're closed. And you know why, well, you know why they're closed on Thanksgiving? Because it's a law. Nobody goes to the gym on Thanksgiving. It's not workout day. It's eat up day so that the gyms can stay in business for the rest of the year. I think they have a collusion with Thanksgiving day. I think it's like their favorite day of the year. I don't know how I got off on that anyway. God said, listen, I will send rain to the point that every day will be like Thanksgiving. You will be satiated with food. You will not be wondering, where am I going to get food? You're going to be wondering, what do I do with all this food? But if you follow other gods, I will dry up the rain. The heavens will be like brass. So it's not like Elijah just kind of walked in and thought, now what can I say to this guy that'll get his attention? You know, maybe I'll tell him about the army. Ah, he, he's got, that's not, maybe it'll be the cherry thing. No, 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 no. What am I going to do? He, that's not what he's doing. He has a very specific message that relates to a very specific part of the wisdom from above that God gave to his people, and it's Deuteronomy 11. And Elijah comes in and says, no more rain. And then he leaves. And three and a half years pass, and there has been no rain. I mean, in the middle, you know, Ahab is so desperate, he gets his, like, chief of staff, a guy named Obadiah, who, by the way, is a faithful servant of the Lord in the midst of all this wickedness, and he's hiding God's people. And he says to Obadiah, Obi, we got to go, we got to do something here. Because the horses are, are dying, and, and uh, my, you know, it was all about Ahab. The, no, no, the people are, you know, not, hey, Obadiah, what do you do? The people are, no, 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 our, our horses are dying, and, and my military power is about to be impacted because of that, and so we got to go find water for the horses. I mean, this is Ahab. It's an economic disaster. The people are destroyed. People have died. The, the crops are, are ruined. And Baal is at the center of all this because he's the rain god. And God says to Elijah, I want you to go back to Ahab. And so Ahab is sitting in this pool of desperation, and Elijah comes back for round two, and he walks in the door, and the first thing that happens out of Ahab's mouth, you trouble Israel. You are the cause of all of this trouble. You ever notice when you go to somebody and you have something constructive you want to say to them, something that really will help them when they're about to make a mistake, and they turn on you and they just come right at you, and it's like, well, you're the cause of all this. It's your problem. It's, this is exactly what Ahab did. We've all been there, haven't we? We go up to somebody like we're, we're concerned. We have this 
burden we want to share with them because we're afraid that they're about to do something that's going to destroy them or, or people they care about or people we care about. And, and their first words out of their mouth is, you're the problem. That's exactly what Ahab did. Ahab may not be uh, a pagan king, but he's acting like a pagan. He's looking right at, at Elijah and he's saying, you are the problem. And Elijah comes right back and says, Ahab, actually, you are the one troubling Israel because you have wandered away from the statutes and the laws of God. Now, I want you to get all the prophets and all the priests and gather on Mount Carmel because God wants a word. And it's stunning to me that this king does it. I mean, he's just like, okay. And he grabs all the prophets. Now, 400 of them actually don't show up. But he gets all the leaders of the people, and they meet on top of the mountain. So who are the people that God really wants to talk to? He sends a nobody to a somebody to tell everybody who are the people God really wants to talk to. And it's his people. It's his people. These were his covenant people. When he rebuilds the altar, there are 10 tribes in the north, but he uses 12 stones to build the altar. And he says, I know there's only 10 tribes here, but I'm talking to the Israel that God established. And he uses the name, the God of Israel and the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. These are God's covenant people. They knew God. Israel shall be your name. Actually, Elijah points this out to them in his talk with them. This is not just theoretical history. These are people who had experientially experienced God's gracious work and God's gracious wisdom, but they had been deceived by sin. Just like, like, like James said, sin had deceived them. Their strong passions had dragged them away. You know what's beautiful about Baal and Asher? I mean, have, have you ever wondered, like, why in the world did a nation that had a God like Israel's God who took them out of Egypt and gave them manna from heaven and did all of these miracles, how could these people be led astray and be deceived by, by this kind of foolish imagery of Baal and Asheroth, the, the God of rain and the God of fertility? How could that happen? Very simple. They forgot what God had done for them because it had happened in another generation. And they were easily led by their strong passions. I mean, it was really interesting um, and, and actually quite exciting to worship Baal. I mean, you could go. Anybody could go. You didn't have to get ritually this or that. You could just go, and it was unrestrained. You could do whatever you want. You could serve him in an unrestrained way with all of your heart, and you could serve him, as one commentator said, with your hormones as well because you could engage in all kinds of sexual immorality, and it was all okay because it was part of worship. Everything God told you not to do, Baal said, hey, not only can you do it, you can do it with a bandit. And these people had been led astray to the point they were sinning sins that was leading them to a place of death. Exactly what James said was happening to people in his day. Some of you have been deceived and your lusts are dragging you away and they're dragging you away to sins that you're doing that are worthy of death. And the evidence of that is what he talks about in the rest of the book. You have these believers in James that are behaving extremely badly. 
And they're doing it with abandon. They're doing it uh, you know, because God won't answer their prayers. We pray and you don't answer, James 4. And James says, let me tell you why God's not answering you. He's not answering you, not because he can't hear you. He's, an- he's not answering you because of why you're praying and how you're praying. You are praying because you want your lusts to be fulfilled and you're not willing to come back and, and live under the wisdom of God with a single-mindedness. It's interesting that these people and the people in James have one common thing. They were divided in their heart. And when these people get to the top of that mountain, Elijah says to them, how long are you going to go on limping between two things? That's the essence of double-mindedness. And James says, if you have that kind of a heart, if your heart is limping between two things, between serving God and serving your flesh, between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world, if you're limping between those two things, don't expect to get anything from God. This nation knew how to get rain. And doubtless... There were among them people who were praying to the true God in the middle of all of that for rain, and God didn't answer them. Why? Because the nation was divided, and God wanted to deal with the dividedness of their heart before he sent them the restoring rain. Have you ever wondered if maybe that isn't why God isn't answering your prayers or my prayers? that we pray so passionately and we quote the scriptures that talk about this and we pray in Jesus' name and we have two or three people gathered together and praying with us and for us and God chooses not to answer. Could it be that God isn't answering your prayer not because he's angry with you but because he loves you like he loved these people? And he's decided to bring you back and restore you to fellowship with him, which is way more important than you getting rain. And that's exactly what happens here. God sent a nobody to a somebody to tell everybody that he wanted a word. Who's the God that wants a word? He's the one true God of Israel as opposed to the many gods of the nations, the pretend gods of the nations. And that's why Elijah's word from this God to his people is, if I am God, follow me. And if not, then quit pretending. I'm I'm not the other option. So you got two options. I got got the Baal and Asheroth option. I've got the, the wisdom of the world option. I got the Jezebel option. And I got the Jehovah option. And God says, no, 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 you have one option. And the option is, you can follow me or not. That's the only option. Because these gods, the Jezebel option, is is the only thing you're choosing there is disobedience. Those are pretend gods. It's not like we got two sets of gods here, and and you got to choose which one you're going to follow. When he says, choose you this day who you will serve, Joshua says that, Elijah's saying that, and James is saying that. He's saying that right to us. This is the living God, the creator and sovereign ruler who is good and gracious. This God always hears. He always answers, and he always gives good gifts. 
That's what James said, didn't he, when he said, don't, don't think that God sent you this bad gift. He only sends good gifts. He never gives his children serpents, and he never gives them stones. What does he give them? The word of truth that came down from heaven. I mean, James is weaving all of this story in Kings into what he's saying in James, if we know how to look for it. The gods of the nations never hear. They never answer. And whatever comes is always evil. I mean, as they're there, you know the story. You know, here are the 400 priests or 450 priests of Baal, and they are described in the text as limping. God's people are limping, and then the prophets are limping. They're they're limping around their altar, crying out to God all day long, and they are doing excruciating things to try to get their God to hear them. And Elijah all along has these little helpful comments. Hey, guys. You know, I know... I know, I know you're getting tired over there limping around your altar. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe your God is, uh, maybe he's on a trip. Can you imagine this? I mean, I just laughed. I, I was laughing in my study as I was reading this. I mean, actually trying to put myself there, watching these guys passionately cut themselves and they're bleeding. And I mean, everything, they know everything's on the line. Because old Jezebel isn't going to be happy if they don't get this nation cemented in the following of Baal. And so here they are, and they're just wailing away, and Elijah's over there. Hey, maybe he's on a trip, guys. Maybe he's musing. Maybe he had to answer a certain call, and it's not yours. And the text says, Baal answered not a word. There was no one who heard. There was no one who answered. And then comes Elijah with a word from God. And that's the word that God wanted to say to everybody. What did he want to say? Well, there is a word of confrontation. How long will you go on limping in your heart allegiance to me, your double-mindedness is why this is all happening. There was a word of confrontation. Then there was a word of invitation. Choose you this day. Align yourself. If you have lined up in James 4 as a friend of the world, you're an actual enemy of God. Change your alignment. Come back to where you should be. And then there is a word of restoration in the prayer itself where Elijah says, listen, would you honor my prayer so your people would know that you are the one that has turned their heart back? This is an amazing thing. You know, sometimes I think we think that we own our own repentance, that we could just repent whenever we want. I've actually heard people say this, and so have you. When you go to them and say, listen, you, you're, you're going down a wrong path, and and that person says, I know. And, and you say, well, you need to repent. And they say, well, I, not now. I'll repent whenever I want. I can always change my mind. Don't assume that. The Scriptures are very clear in the New Testament. Paul actually tells Timothy, you pray for these people that God would grant them repentance. Have you ever thought about the fact that when somebody is talking to you about your need to repent, that may be God granting you repentance and you are despising the good word from God. And so here, God 
answers this nobody when he spoke to everybody and fire fell. You can see that right away in verse 38. Fire fell from heaven, and then the people fell on their faces. And then the prophets fell under the judicial sentence of the Mosaic law and and were slaughtered judicially for leading God's people into their sin. The nation finally starts obeying the Torah of God, and then rain fell from heaven, and mercy triumphed over judgment. Now, let me end with this. How did all of this happen? How in the world did this nobody, this humble, ordinary, everyday person who was just being faithful to God in an unknown place who was looking around at all of this brokenness, all of this devastation, all of this darkness, all of this hardness, all of what was going on around him, all of this wickedness and rampant idolatry and immorality. How did this one person accomplish all of this? And the Scripture's answer to that is this. He was willing to go into a hard place and to be in a dark space and to suffer. And while he was doing that, he was willing to speak boldly the truth of God graciously. But he did all of this because the Spirit of God empowered him when he prayed. You say, where do you get that? You remember that little detail at the end when the rain finally came? He goes up to the mountain. He gets down on his face, and seven times he tells his servant, go tell me what you see. And finally he says, a little tiny cloud the size of a man's hand. And he says, go tell Ahab to get in his chariot and make a run 15 miles to Jezreel. And so Ahab does that. He gets in one of those famous chariots of his with some of those wonderful horses that he had kept strong during the drought, and he takes off at full gallop for 15 miles, and when he gets there, there's somebody waiting for him. It's this nobody named Elijah. How did he get there? The text says he went in the spirit of the Lord. And that's how he did everything. That little detail is not just for that one moment. It's explaining to you that the reason God sends his servants into hard places and dark places is not because they have unusual strength and not because they're unusually spiritual or not because there's something incredible about them. He sends common, ordinary, everyday people just like us into hard spaces and dark places to rescue his people who have been deceived by sin and are wandering away, and he does it through their faithful praying and through the power of his spirit. You are never going to make a hard place and a dark space without the power of the Holy Spirit. You're just not. You're going to end up at some point in your own strength where Elijah ends up in chapter 19 saying to God, I have had enough. It's, I'm done. And God has to send his spirit to Elijah, to strengthen Elijah, to comfort Elijah, and to re-engage Elijah in the ministry. And you know, as we wrap up James here in the next week or so, that's really where God is taking us. He is saying to us, there is a hard place and a dark space that I have for you, and I'm getting you ready. You may be in that part of the story where Elijah was before chapter 17. We have no idea how long he was there. We have no idea what he was doing. All we know is that he was a humble, ordinary, faithful servant of God who was praying for God 
to do something. And then God tapped him and said, I want you to go to somebody so that I can tell everybody a word of restoration. May God help us to do that. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that there was one greater than Elijah who you sent as a servant who stood before you in a hard place and in a dark space for 33 years. And while his arms were stretched out and his hands were being pierced, this righteous servant, greater than Elijah, was doing what Elijah did. He was praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And your spirit raised him from the dead. And because that servant came to a hard place and a dark space, and he lived faithfully and obediently, and he prayed fervently, and he spoke truthfully, we have been returned to the shepherd of our souls. And it may be, Lord, that you're going to appoint some of us in a small way to do what these two great servants did, that you have our own hard space and our own dark place. And some of us are in it. Some of us are so tired. We've been wounded. We've been hurt. And we've literally said, even if to nobody else but you, I have had enough. And your spirit comes and feeds us and refreshes us and says to us, you have had enough, but I'm not done. I have more for you to do. And so, Lord, as we leave this place this morning, do that work in us that only your word can do. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.